Welcome to the session. My name is Alp Center. I'm a urologist and transplant surgeon at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada, and I'm currently the president of the Urolog Urological Society of Transplantation and Renal Surgery. Um, I have the distinct pleasure of moderating today's controversies in urology session on the utility of robot-assisted platforms in kidney transplantation. I think we can all agree that uh, there's a worldwide increase in the number of patients with end-stage renal disease, and this is usually due to growing trends in obesity, diabetes, and hypertension. And there's insurmountable evidence to suggest that kidney transplantation is the most optimal mode of renal replacement therapy compared to any form of dialysis. It's very clear that transplantation uh, portends a significant improvement in medical outcomes, primarily through the reduction in cardiovascular morbidity, and a significant increase in patient survival, while at the same time decreasing the overall cost of the entire healthcare system. Urologists have always been at the leading edge of surgical innovation, especially of kidney transplantation. The first living donor nephrectomy and transplant were successfully performed by Drs. Harrison and Murray in 1954, and the eventual developments in minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery then led to the first laparoscopic donor nephrectomy, which was done exactly 25 years ago uh, this year which then opened the doors for other significant advances such as a laparoendoscopic single site donor nephrectomy, uh, which was then further advanced with introduction of robotic platforms. It was quite inevitable that uh, uh, eventually urologists would apply robotic techniques to master the complex vascular reconstruction required in kidney transplantation. So although there's general consensus regarding the multitude of advantages of minimally invasive techniques in surgery, the use of robotic-assisted platforms in kidney transplantation really does continue to be debated amongst all forms of transplant surgeons, whether they're uh, uh, urologists, general surgeons, or vascular surgeons. So to help highlight both sides of the argument, uh, we have with us today two experts in kidney transplantation and in minimally invasive robotic surgery. First, we have uh, Dr. Ken Pace, who is the Vice Chief of Surgery uh, and Chief of the Division of Urology at St. Mike's Hospital in Toronto, Canada. And uh, he's also the current president of the Northeast section of the AUA. Dr. Pace's uh, primary research interests include clinical trials in the treatment of kidney stones and shockwave lithotripsy, as well as quality of life assessment following robotic urological surgery and transplantation. He'll argue today about why robotic surgery should not be the mainstay of renal transplantation. Dr. Alberto Breda is the head of urooncology and director of kidney transplant surgery at the Universidad Autonoma in Barcelona, and is the current chairman of the European Guidelines in Kidney Transplantation. His academic interests include robotic kidney transplants, living donor kidney transplantation, and minimally invasive surgery of the kidney and the prostate. Dr. Breda will be arguing today on the merits of robot-assisted renal transplantation. So I'll first ask Dr. Pace to start us off this afternoon. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Center, and also thank you to the AUA for including me in this uh, fantastic session. Uh, my primary disclosure today is that uh, I've been a robotic surgeon since 2008, and so I'm a little bit conflicted about being assigned this uh, perspective. But I do think this is a situation where just because we have a hammer, in this case a robot, does not make everything a nail. That's a screw, which we don't generally use a hammer on. Um, I also want to remind everybody about the goals of renal transplantation. So those goals are to improve both quality and quantity of life and overall survival, all the while saving our healthcare system money since renal transplantation is cheaper than dialysis in the long run. This is accomplished by uh, receiving a well-functioning graft and by minimizing complications around the time of the operation 
And that is accomplished by using meticulous surgical technique. Now the bar, the bar for open renal transplantation is set very high. This is Canada-wide data for kidney-only transplants. And if you look one year down the road, patient survival extremely high and graft survival almost equally high, 98.1%. These are excellent outcomes that are very difficult to improve upon. And again, open renal transplantation is the gold standard for a number of reasons. This is data from our center for the year ending 2018, where our mean warm ischemic time was 30 minutes. Patients spent less than a day on PCA analgesia. At that time, they stayed in hospital about seven days. They now stay in hospital six days. Surgical site infection rates were quite low. And although they were slightly higher with high BMI, they were primarily higher in patients with diabetes or substance abuse. And our outcomes were excellent at one year for living donors, 100% grafting patient survival for deceased donors, 98%. So the question is, why would we mess with success? And the answer is, well, what can robotic renal transplantation offer? Can it offer better graft outcomes? The answer is no. Can it offer fewer wound-related complications? And the answer is a maybe. Can it reduce opioid usage in our patients postoperatively? And the answer there is maybe, although is it clinically significant? Can it reduce cost? Definitely not. It will absolutely be more expensive. Can it improve cosmesis? It may, but this may not be that important to our patients. And finally, can it expand transplantation to patients who otherwise would be refused a kidney? This is theoretically possible, but has not been proven. So the quest, first question is, can we do it robotically? And as Dr. Breda has elegantly shown, clearly the answer is yes, we can do it. The real question is, should we do it? And here, whenever we're weighing new technologies, we have to consider risk-benefit ratio, the issue of learning curve, and particularly the harms that may be incurred upon some patients during the learning curve, and then cost considerations. So let's go through what the real benefits of robotic renal transplantation may be. Here's a comparative study, 40 cases open versus 40 cases robotically. And what you'll see is that when they look at pain scores for the first 48 hours postoperatively, there's a small difference favoring the robotic group that's gone by the time 48 hours elapses. In fact, what you could argue here is that perhaps the open patients didn't receive enough analgesics because ideally their pain scores should actually be the same. They also made much of the fact that their drain time was shorter after a robotic approach. I have a solution for that, and that's not to leave a drain at all after a transplant. Our, we don't leave drains routinely, and so our drain time is zero days. What about length of stay? Here's another comparative study, 21 versus 21 patients, where they cherry-picked really the best patients. And in this study, what we found was that OR times were longer, ischemic times were longer in the robotic group. Renal function was very similar between the two groups happily, and they made much of this difference in terms of length of stay, where basically seven days were shaved off of the hospital stay. This is a European study, and so it's not necessarily generalizable because certainly in North America, a hospital stay of 23.5 days after a renal transplant would be excessive. Here, our median stays are seven days, six days, hard to improve upon that. And most of that time is actually not for surgical recovery, but for learning immunosuppression. What about other operative parameters? Well, here are a number of studies looking at operative time, at ischemic time, and at blood loss. And in each of these studies, there's either no difference or only clinically insignificant differences, and certainly no real advantage to the robotic approach. So what about graft survival? Well, once again, we have Dr. Breda to thank for data on this. Here's published one-year follow-up, and in fact, in abstract form, there's two-year follow-up data. 
And what we see is that these were living donor transplants in whom the bar is set very high and we are unwilling really to accept any graft loss. What they found was that there was about 3.6% acute graft loss due to arterial thrombosis, delayed graft function at one month of 3.4% and a need to re-explore some of these patients. Now, overall, these are excellent results, but the fact that there was a 3.4% graph loss, 3.4% delayed graph function rate at one month are more than we would consider acceptable for most living-related renal transplants and suggests that at least some of these patients may have been harmed by having a robotic approach as opposed to an open approach. Now, you don't have to take Dr. Breda's word for it. Uh, there are other investigators who have also published data to this effect showing higher complication rates, particularly early in the learning curve where you're mastering the technique of the robotic approach. So then that brings us to the learning curve. And once again, we have Dr. Breda to thank for quantifying what this entails. And what we see is in their highly selected group, both of patients and surgeons, these were expert surgeons and highly selected living donor transplant recipients without anatomical complexity, what they examined was how many cases did it take to achieve this trifecta of no major operative complications, no delayed graft function, and an ischemic time of less than 50 minutes. What they found is as they did their cases, their, their uh, ischemic time did decrease appropriately, but even after 20 cases, the trifecta rate was only 56.6%, and it took them about 35 cases to get to a rate of 75%, approximating the outcomes of open surgery. But while they did this, there were seven major intraoperative complications and three grafts that were lost due to arterial thrombosis, complications that may not have happened if the operation had been done open. And again, these were living donor recipients who are fairly straightforward and you would expect excellent outcomes out of with an open approach. So what about obesity? Well, it's often been mooted that robotics may be the killer app for obese recipients, allowing you to do the operation in patients who would not be able to do, be done open. Here's a comparative study, 28 versus 28 robotic versus open patients. And what you'll see here is that the BMIs were high in both groups and comparable, but the rate of diabetes was much lower in the robotic group because they excluded patients with atherosclerotic disease, which of course goes along with diabetes, much higher rates in the open patients. Now, if you look at their outcomes, their ischemic times were excellent and comparable, their blood loss was comparable. And then if we look at things like wound complications, these were clearly lower in the robotic group, no question. However, in terms of graft function, particularly acutely, the open patients did better. And this is even though the open patients were handicapped by having a higher rate of diabetes, and we know that diabetes really negatively affects outcomes post-transplantation. If we look at length of stay, there is no difference between the two groups, despite the fact that wound complications were higher in the robotic group. And most importantly, if we look at cost, even though there were fewer infections in the robotic group, costs both for the initial hospitalization and for the total six months post-transplant, much higher in that group. Here's another study with a larger group of patients, 239. There was no control group here, but they successfully did robotic transplantation in many of these patients. But what I'll point out is that they had to convert to open in nine of these cases. And so the suggestion that you couldn't do these operations open is simply not true. In these nine cases, they actually bailed out the operation by salvaging a difficult situation open in all of those cases. What about cosmesis? Well, I would, I would put it out that cosmesis is unimportant for the vast majority of our transplant recipients. 
Now, for the fans out there of Modern Family, this is Haley Dunphy, a Hollywood actress who had congenital renal agenesis. She's had a number of operations, including this tidy renal transplant incision. And even in an actress, this is a pretty good cosmetic result. Now, here's one of Dr. Breda's patients. They have had an excellent cosmetic outcome with a robotic transplant, no question about it. I'm sure they would have had an excellent cosmetic outcome with an open operation as well. Now, what about cost? There's no formal cost studies in the literature, precisely zero, which is a real uh, shame. But if we again look at that one study I quoted, costs are dramatically higher, not just for the hospitalization, but in the first six months post-transplant uh, in this study. And in our era of COVID, with economies crashing worldwide and healthcare systems under strain, we really need to think about costs perhaps more importantly now than ever. So in conclusion, robotic renal transplantation is certainly feasible, safe, and reproducible, but it is not a slam dunk. For those of you who don't know, that's Michael Jordan, of course, the greatest basketball player to ever play. Uh, for now, it's not really an option for all recipients, and it does come at a cost, and that cost is not just financial, it's also the cost of increased graft loss, especially acutely, and especially during the learning curve where patients may be harmed. I wanna thank uh, a couple of my fellows for contributing to these slides, for the entire team at my institution, which is responsible for assisting with transplantation. And thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Pace, Dr. Breda. We look forward to hearing your comments. Thank you, Dr. Sainer. Um, I'm very pleased to be here. And I thank both of you and the AUA for this kind invitation. So let's say that uh, uh, my experience with robotic kidney transplantation started back in uh, July, 2015. And all the doubts and criticism uh, that Dr. Pace uh, already mentioned uh, were my criticism uh, back in those days. And I would like to go through my experience uh, and to explain to you what was my um, uh, experience over these uh, five years. So this was our first case. I have to say that my mentor uh, was uh, uh, Professor Rajesh Shalawat, uh, together with many men, and, and I replicated their technique. Um, and I want to give them a lot of credit for what they have done <clears throat> over these years. And because of uh, their help, uh, we were able to start in my center with the first robotic uh, kidney transplantation and demonstrate a year after uh, that we performed the first 16 cases. And you see here that uh, um, at one year, uh, and as well, I'm sorry, seven days, and as well as one year, uh, the GFR of this uh, living donor, correct, uh, uh, Dr. Pace, these were all living donor-related uh, transplantation, were uh, at least equivalent to, to what we would have expected uh, from a normal selected living donors. But this was not enough for me, and therefore I decided uh, to put together a group uh, of uh, experts, both in robotic transplantation and, I'm sorry, in robotic surgery and in open kidney transplantation and start this experience under the umbrella of the European Robotic uh, uh, Association of Urology. And these are the first centers uh, that uh, um, agreed uh, to, to, to start a collective uh, um, um, uh, data on robotic kidney transplantation. The surgery, as you see in here, is, uh, uh, I would say, a pretty exciting surgery, um, and it mimics exactly what you would uh, do in uh, an open fashion, uh, other than 
here you have to think um, that we have the kidney uh, uh, position intraperitoneally and it is exposed to temperature that are around 38 degrees uh, uh, Celsius and therefore we have to place the kidney in a jacket filled with ice uh, to maintain uh, um, the temperature loads. But other than that, another using, uh, then using the Goratex suture, which we normally don't use in open surgery, it reproduces exactly what we do in open. So we would expect that it is as it is for other surgeries, such as the prostatectomy, for instance, the results are at least equivalent to what we would have in an open fashion in terms of functional results. Um, this is the vein, the artery is absolutely the same. You see here a nicely spatulated artery from a living donor. And again, we use a punch like we would do for the open surgery. And again, we would, do, we would use the 6-0 uh, Goretex suture to perform a running suture um, on the arter arterial side. And the third uh, portion of the, of, the, of the surgery is the anastomosis of the ureter, which you see here, we're using a monocryl, 5-0 monocryl, um, and we use a Leach-Gregoire Leach technique. Um, again, this is exactly replicating what we would do in open surgery. Um, and again, I was convinced at that time that uh, we could not be better than open surgery in terms of functional results so for many reasons. Um, first of all, that we were performing selected uh, living donors. Second, uh, that how can you be, be better than open in terms of functional results? Um, that is why we put together this platform. This is the IRUS uh, um, uh, platform on robotic-assisted uh, kidney transplantation in which each center can place their data in a prospective way. And it's uh, uh, something that is managed by uh, our data manager in uh, my center. But the idea, uh, I mean, the, 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 the platform, was, platform was put together by the University of Florence. And as was nicely showing, showed by Dr. Pace, uh, we were able to produce the first evidence on 120 Again, very selected living donors uh, transplantation and in, from eight centers around the world. And you see in here that in fact, uh, as expected, the functional results are exactly uh, similar to the one that you would expect in, in open surgery. But yes, you are absolutely right that we were um, a little bit astonished at the very beginning that we lost uh, three grafts. Um, as you said, Dr. Senner, I have the pleasure to direct the EAU guidelines on kidney transplantation. And guess what? If we look at the arterial thrombosis in the living donor, absolutely right that you can have zero arterial thrombosis, but in the literature, the data is not as good as Dr. Pace was saying. In fact, it runs from 0.5% to 3.5%. And this is data from the living donor. And look at this, lymphocele and boot infections uh, are, uh, accounts for approximately 4% to up to 26%. And if you look, look at the table from this first European urology publication, our range of uh, uh, clavian complication one is certainly lower than the one reported from the EAU guidelines in open kidney transplantation. 
We looked also at our experience, uh, as, uh, as Dr. Pate said, uh, at one year follow-up, uh, and we were able to uh, prove uh, that, uh, yes, you are right uh, that we lost the three kidneys, uh, but those were three kidneys from the entire se series that now account on three, over 300 cases, uh, and uh, there has been uh, no more series of kidney thrombosis, uh, that, uh, and the functional results at one year were exactly uh, um, uh, in line with uh, um, um, the results uh, uh, from the open series. And if we look at the uh, late complication rates, such as urethral stenosis and gra graft pyelonephritis, you see here that we had anecdotal cases. But if you look at the EAU guidelines in open living donor nephrectomy, again, the incisional hernia, urethral stricture, and graft pyelonephritis are certainly higher. Now, the answer to whether we are right or not will come from a prospective randomized study that I hope we will be able to start very soon. Um, and only with that, we will have uh, the last answer whether uh, this is a better way to perform uh, the surgery. But I have to admit that if one merit comes from the robotic assisted uh, surgery is in reconstructive surgery. And in this case, it does not surprise me that the urethral stricture in our series is absolutely lower than in open surgery. Also, uh, we started with the experience to become, uh, of course, better. And we are not only performing uh, uh, surgery in one artery, one very vein, very selected cases, but now lately, and we were able to publish this in European Neurology again, we are performing cases uh, with multiple arteries, uh, such as the one that you've seen here, or multiple veins. And guess what? The results are exactly the same as uh, with open surgery. Again, we were able to conduct studies in the obese population. This has been uh, uh, submitted to transplantation. I have to say that it was rejected in transplantation and recently published in the WJU. Um, and we were able to demonstrate again that in the obese population defined by BMI over 30 and 35, the results were exactly the same as in the population of BMI uh, less than 30. And you know that in many centers, uh, BMI over 35 is an absolute contraindication for kidney transplantation. So I would say that there is uh, no argue nowadays, uh, at least in my center and in within our uh, group, uh, that obese population probably is uh, among uh, the population that deserves uh, the most uh, this kind of surgery. Um, despite uh, what we have said, uh, you know, the number are rapidly increasing, and this is the situation right now, the group that I, re that I direct uh, from the, the IRUS group. You see here that we started with six, we are now 12 centers. Cases started with 120, and we, we are now over 300, and soon you will see more publications coming with more results on this beautiful surgery. And I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Breda, for that fantastic body of work. Dr. Pace, would you like to uh, begin your rebuttal? Well, uh, thank you again. And Dr. Breda, it's a fantastic accomplishment and a great talk. I enjoyed it very much. Um, and I do have to give credit where credit is due because it's pioneers like you and others who have really pushed the envelope and made robotic renal transplantation a reality, just as urologists have done for so many technologies over the years. That includes Dr. Hosniak, who as early as 2002 showed you could do a robotic transplant, albeit an open robotic transplant, uh, followed by Dr. Boggy, who did the first closed uh, robotic transplant in 2011, 
and then really Manny Menon who standardized the technique. And then of course you, Dr. Bereda, for championing it and pushing it forward in Europe and for the rest of us as a model around the world. Whenever we take any new technique though, we really have to have a critical evaluation of that technique. And in this case, we've got to balance pros and cons. So we've got to balance the increased cost with particularly during the learning curve, that increased risk of graph loss. And we do have to remember that although your patients may no longer be all that uh, selected, the surgeons certainly are. And we're not talking about Joe Schlub surgeon doing a robotic transplant. We're talking about experts doing robotic transplants right now and certainly getting excellent results. But how generalizable that is, is still unclear. And the benefits in terms of decreased wound complications and whether or not we can extend uh, this operation to more morbidly obese patients are unclear and I think don't, over, uh, don't outweigh the cons, at least at this point. Just a reminder that OPEN remains the gold standard because of its excellent outcomes. And this is uh, one of our DCD open renal transplant recipients, BMI of 43, so we don't exclude patients over 30 or 35. Um, and where is his scar? The answer is it is here, it's hiding under his panis. So he's actually had an excellent cosmetic result and a functioning graft, even with an open operation. Uh, this is Dr. Burr's idea of an obese patient. I think this patient perhaps weighs 40 kilograms soaking wet, but there's no question that they had an excellent cosmetic result with a robotic operation. But I want to ask the audience, what are we going to do with this guy? So he's a BMI of about 100, uh, and he does not have a living donor. He wants a transplant. And so how do we go about tackling this? Well, I think our first option is we tell him to hit the gym, see if he can lose some weight. Maybe uh, he should have bariatric surgery first and therefore lose weight. Maybe he should remain on dialysis. Or perhaps we should bring a crane into the operating room and do an open renal transplant with that to try and lower us into that incision. But my preferred solution, I, I think I'm going to refer this patient to Dr. Breda, and he can do a deceased donor renal transplant on him at three in the morning instead of me. That's, that's my preference anyways. Uh, but all, all joking aside, I think this has been a, a great exploration of this uh, novel technology. Once again, I want to thank uh, my fellows and the members of our team locally. And I rem remind everybody that I hope we can see you again in person at this meeting of the Northeast section of the uh, AUA in October. We'll see if we're able to do it in person. And if so, I hope to see you there. And thank you again for the opportunity. Thanks, Dr. Pace. Dr. Breda, please present your final remarks. Sure. All right. So, um, yeah, I agree. Whenever we start something new, um, there are always limitations that we have to look um, at. And I think that I want to be as critical as possible in what we are doing. Um, and I have to say that uh, the major limitations uh, so far of robotic assisted kidney transplantations are number one, that yes, we have been very, very much biased by the living donor population. Um, number two, that there is potential damage to the, due to the rewarming time. As I said, we use a crashed ice uh, um, and uh, the temperature that it, the kidney is exposed uh, uh, is at 38 degrees, which is certainly not the, 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 the air temperature that we use in the OR, and then the learning curve. So let me go over some of the things that we've done. This is what was a paper that we published in the BJU just to show that uh, in fact, we are able to perform these also in the 
disease donor population. These are excellent results. And you see here that we're using a, a, a carol patch with two arteries. So again, we are trying to extrapolate the results from the living donor also from to the disease donor. Now, granted, in this population, you don't have a tactile feedback, so you need to perform CT scan in everybody and need to make sure 100% that the aliac vessels are not calcified or minimally calcified. Um, the thing uh, is that uh, it is feasible. We are working also on some programs uh, for uh, subrepresentation of images, uh, and you will hear more of this uh, uh, augmented reality in the future. Um, the, the fact of the rewarming technique, you see here the original technique performed uh, by many men in Rajesh Alawat in the ideal phase two published in 2012 uh, in European Urology. And you see here that we fill the abdomen with ice and then we place uh, the kidney that is uh, in a jacket filled with crashed ice. But I have to say that this can come with some sort of problems of hypothermia for the patient and also some sort of uh, um, ileum uh, uh, to the patient because of the contact to the ice. So we just patented this uh, new device that is... Um, uh, absolutely uh, um, uh, very useful. And you see here is designed exactly for robotic surgery, but it works also in uh, open. And this is in fact a living donor from an open that we did, uh, we did to validate uh, this structure. And you see here is ejected with an uh, in, uh, uh, inner and outer uh, tube that uh, modulate the temperature to the temperature that you want around the 12 to 14 to 18 degrees. And you can do the, the entire surgery robotically uh, with the with the kidney that is kept at a con uh, at a constant temperature of around, as I said, twelve to sixteen degrees, so you can do your surgery in a much uh, safer way. I would argue. Um, also, um, uh, let me tell you that uh, um, I've been a fellow with uh, um, uh, at UCLA uh, with Jeff Beal, um, and he, he was my mentor in kidney transplantation. And my mentoring was performed over a live model, the human. Um, nowadays, I think I'm proud to say that we can offer uh, courses on robotic kidney transplantation at the Orsi Center that is in uh, Belgium and is directed by Alex Motri. And uh, these courses are three-day courses. Uh, and we are fully packed with not only with urologists, uh, but also with general surgeon and vascular surgeon. And one of the things that I'm finding uh, is that this surgery is so beautiful uh, that we are attracting uh, the transplant surgery back to urology. I don't know in the, if in, the, in Canada is the same, but in Europe, the majority of the surgeon perform, performing a transplantation are in fact general surgeon, which is nothing bad. There's nothing bad on that, but I think that urology has to bring the transplant back to urology, and this is a nice way to do it. These courses are in this year, unfortunately for the COVID, we had to suspend all these past three months, but we have two new courses coming up in September and in November. And the uh, trainers, they come in on the first day, they have some theoretical uh, um, um, exposition, and then we test uh, their uh, uh, skill on robotic surgery on a porcine model in this, uh, in this uh, plastic model of vessels. So this, uh, in fact, uh, they, uh, lets us understand how skilled, skilled is the surgeon. And based on that, then we perform a personalized training uh, in which 
the uh, the um, trainer uh, can be exposed to a living donor from uh, the porcine, and then uh, it uh, we reproduce exactly the same that we would do in uh, robotic uh, uh, transplantation. And as you see in here, we teach. Uh, the surgeon how to prepare the graft, how to spatulate the artery, how to place the kidney in the jacket, uh, and then uh, how to position the patient, in this case, uh, uh, the porcine model. The porcine model has been shown not to be perfect uh, for kidney partial nephrectomies, but it's absolutely beautiful, as you see in here, the humans on the left and a kidney porcine model on the right, almost no different. So at the end of the three days, after performing seven or eight of these kidney transplants, they can, the surgeons can go to a live case obs observation, either on my center or, or, or the University of Kent. And these are, have been all the uh, people that we have trained. And you see that uh, with my surprise uh, this year, we had also people from the USA flying, flying over uh, to be trained in kidney transplantation. And also the learning curve, as you showed uh, uh, before, with this kind of training, uh, we have been able to reduce and publish this year, the, the, uh, I'm sorry, to demonstrate and publish this, this year that uh, it takes approximately 20 to 30 cases uh, to become an excellent surgeon. But you are absolutely right, uh, Dr. Pace. Uh, you need to be an excellent surgeon in robotic surgery and an excellent surgery surgeon in kidney transplant. So I thank you very much for this attention. Uh, this was my final slide. Uh, and um, I hope I was able to convince you that uh, we are not there yet, but robotic is here to stay. Thank you. So I'd like to thank both uh, Drs. Pace and Dr. Breda on their exceptional presentations and the, the, the discourse between the two. It's been quite enjoyable to see them both. I think that the, the topic of robot-assisted kidney transplantation will not be resolved quickly, as there's remarkable progress being made on the minimally invasive side. But its utility, I think we have to think about in deceased donor transplantation, uh, fellow education, overall cost of the system and utility in some complex vascular uh, uh, abnormality type cases will continue to be debated for, for some time, I think. But we hope that Dr. Breda's team will uh, keep pushing the boundaries. So uh, this concludes the end of the session. Uh, thank you, Dr. Pace and Dr. Breda, and we thank everyone for listening. In.